Rabbi. Hey, I'm Rabbi Jonathan Singer, and I am so glad to welcome you to Congregation Emmanuel on behalf of the synagogue, on behalf of the Israel Action Committee, uh, which uh, does such work to bring opportunities for diverse aspects of the Jewish community to come together around Israel, to engage in dialogue, and to be open to each other as we come from different perspectives. God creates a diverse world because it's interesting and it's beautiful. So too for Jews around how we think about the miracle of Israel. Uh, we are honored to partner with APAC and the work that APAC does to represent Israel in our government, to bring again Jews from different perspectives, uh, to make sure Israel gets the support as it exists in a difficult part of the world, uh, and have the connection between American Jews and Israeli Jews. I was uh, so uh, uh, amazed to be part of the APAC policy conference this last year in Washington, D.C., and be at the biggest gathering of Jews in the United States. It was incredible. And there'll be an Emmanuel delegation going again this year, and I hope that you can join with them and join with Rabbi Bauer, who'll be leading that. He just got back, as I, we did last year, uh, from the uh, clergy trip that APAC does to Israel. And that's where we heard our speaker tonight, Yossi Klein Halevi, and we're so impressed with him and so glad when APAC offered to bring him here tonight for the San Francisco Jewish community. So it's wonderful to be here. It's also the month of, let's say that louder, everybody. Elul. It's the month of Elul. And we have to think about tshuva and turning. And, and I found Rhea off the street. She said she could blow shofar for us. So She's a little nervous. But we'll be with her as she blows that, that call to transformation and renewal. Uh, Rosh Hashanah is only in about 10 days or so. So Pretty good, right? Let <laughs> me say Yashikala. Yashikala, thanks so much. Nice to meet you. To introduce our speaker uh, tonight, we'll have uh, Adam Harris, who so ably works uh, to lead APAC here in the Pacific Northwest region. It's a big, big region to bring Jews like us together. And then after our speaker, we'll hear from our Israel Action Committee Chair, Jordan Heimowitz, who is really helping us have that diverse voice and Israel interest here in the community. I give a big hand to Adam and his work. All right. Good evening, everyone. Thank you, Rabbi. Thank you, uh, Jordan and the Israel Action Committee. I'm thrilled to be here, and it's wonderful to see so many people. What I want to do tonight is spend a few minutes talking about the election, a few minutes talking about the partisanship taking over Washington and the country, and really talk about us and our work and us as a community. When I look at the state of the election right now, and especially the presidential election, what I see is a complete breakdown of the American political discord. How we relate to each other, how we speak to each other, how we even think about which party or which, part or which politician we're supporting. Most of us have a political position. Most of us align with a political party. And usually, based on your party, you get all of your news from MSNBC, or you get all of your news from Fox. You get all of your news from the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal. For the most part, your friends on Facebook are all of the same political party, and you only hear the echo chamber. 
And what that has created is an American public that is as divided as it's been in a generation. And what that means for us, pay, as we pay attention to politics, is that work on Capitol Hill has grinded to a halt. And each side is arguing from a perspective that it is better to block the other side from doing anything than from working together to advance anything. And as an American Jewish community, we are falling victim to the same trap. We are falling victim to the notion that you can't have a political conversation because partisan politics is more true to us than the actual discussion, the intellectual debate. And as American Jews, that's a danger because that intellectual debate, that willingness to converse with the other side, is what has made us stronger over the years. And when you think about this conversation, one of the most dangerous areas where the partisanship comes to bear is on the question of Israel. Because we as a community have found a way that even though we may view Israel or the Middle East or foreign policy from a left or right perspective, we've always found a way to come together when it comes to the question of keeping Israel secure. Always found a way to come together when it comes to the U.S.-Israel relationship. But over the last few years, as partisan politics have become the norm in the United States, so too has it become the norm that American Jews in our Jewish community refuses to have the conversation with the other side on Israel. And that's incredibly damaging. And it's damaging not only because we cut off our own intellectual exercise, but it's damaging because the reason we've been effective on Capitol Hill, the reason that we've been able to advance legislation forward no matter which party is in power, no matter which party controls the House or Senate, is because we've been able to come together on Israel. And as I look out at the current state of affairs, that's the area that we as a community have to grow stronger and more aware of, that it is okay to disagree with someone. It is okay to have the discussion. The discussion is critically important. And at APAC, what we seek to do is bring people on the left together with people on the right, and vice versa, to advance legislation. With the idea being, you can be, you can make Israel like any other political topic. Think Zika funding, or guns, or healthcare, where people have a strong opinion but nothing gets advanced. Or, you can do the, take the avenue that we've taken over the years, which is find a way to build consensus. And I can admit to you, and we all know right now, that the pursuit of consensus is far more difficult than the ability to retreat to your political corner. Because it, because it requires a bit of compromise. It requires us to acknowledge there's a greater good that we can pursue and achieve if we're willing to work together. And I can tell you firsthand, and just in the last week, we've seen a couple examples of this remarkable bipartisanship that APAC works toward and APAC hopes to foster through results on Capitol Hill. And I remind you, we're talking about a Capitol Hill where nothing gets done. But look at this. In the last week, 88 senators, 47 Republicans, and 41 Democrats, who truly don't agree on whether the sun rises in the East, came together to sign a letter to the President in support of a two-state solution, in support of direct talks, 
and urging the president not to advance unilateral decisions or, or and encouraging him to veto any one-sided resolution of the United Nations. And while the content of that letter is, in our opinion, excellent and something we strongly support, we also can't lose sight of the fact that 47 Republicans and 41 Democrats came together to sign it. That is a remarkable testament, not only to our community's work, but the way that we've been able to work with members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, across the full spectrum, to achieve a greater good. The second point I want to bring up is the Memorandum of Understanding that's been in the news in the last week, where the President and the Prime Minister agreed to a new funding package, 10 years, $38 billion. And I'm sure you've seen the stories. There are some who say it's not enough money. The Prime Minister got taken. And then there's other people who are saying we shouldn't have agreed to send them money without caveats. And I just want to mention a few things about this memorandum. One, $38 billion. That is nothing to sneeze at. $38 billion in a Congress that only talks about cutting the budget. That, again, can't agree on funding for Zika and can't agree on how much we should spend on defense, and can't agree on any of the entitlement reforms, agrees to spend $38 billion over 10 years to strengthen our ally. Uh, this deal not only provides Israel the remarkable security of knowing its strongest ally will stand with it for the next 10 years, but consider this. This deal guarantees Israel funding not only through the rest of the Obama administration, but will guarantee Israel's funding through the rest of a Clinton or Trump administration, and will guarantee Israel's funding into the next administration of whom we have no idea who will be the leader. It will guarantee funding for five Congresses. That is a remarkable statement. And the only thing that you hear from Capitol Hill is some members of Congress are frustrated that it wasn't more money. Just think about that. But the conversation isn't about why are we funding, spending this money. The conversation isn't about is Israel a worthy ally. The conversation is how do we help our best friend and ally Israel more. That cannot be taken for granted. And we should ask ourselves how did that come to be? And it came to be because remarkable people in this room and remarkable people around the country who are willing to work with both sides of the aisle willing to compromise just a little bit on their partisan politics, come together to achieve a greater good. And I look at national board members like Sissy Swig, or I see Naomi Lauder, who helped build the APAC office in San Francisco, and Sam Lauder as the political chair, who realize the depth of what we're able to achieve is far greater when we come together, even with those we disagree with sometimes, because the end result is worth it. And I can tell you firsthand, and Rabbi Singer mentioned it beautifully, there is no better way to see this, no better way to feel this, than coming to the APAC Policy Conference in March. Being in a room with 18,000 people, 18,000 pro-Israel Americans from across the political spectrum, including African Americans, Hispanics, pro-Israel Christians, and 4,000 students, 4,000 students are taking time. They're figuring out how to fly across the country to come. What's your excuse? They're able to do it. And they come together because they understand that this is something that matters to us as Americans. 
And when you sit in the hall at Policy Conference, or last year we were at the Verizon Center, the NBA arena downtown, not only is it rejuvenating and invigorating just to see and be part of this celebration of the U.S.-Israel relationship, but then the next day you go to Capitol Hill and you meet with your member of Congress, your senators, and you actually can see the work, see the meaning of being in Washington. And we have a saying in APAC, make, make APAC a family affair. I encourage you not only to join the Temple of Emmanuel delegation, but bring your kids and grandkids. Show them that they have access to change the world. They have the ability to make a difference. They can go to their member of Congress and make the exact case that you and I may instinctively know about why Israel matters, and then see it play out in real time. This is something that's within all of our control. And again, as I look out at the political landscape, and I see only more division, and only more challenges ahead of bringing the parties together, we need more people coming together and willing to sacrifice for a cause they believe in greatly to help keep Israel secure for the next generation and the generation after that. I thank you for being here. I'm thrilled tonight that we're able to bring Yossi Klein-Halevi in because Yossi not only is an expert in his field but can provide a unique take on how American Jews can better relate to an Israel that we all dream of being as wonderful as it can be. So before we introduce Yossi, I'd love to do two last and two quick introductions. One is I want to introduce my colleague, Sarah Kaplan, who's the San Francisco staff member overseeing this area. Sarah. And I want to introduce uh, Rachel Ehrman, our synagogue initiative director, who's going to come up and introduce Yossi. Ladies and gentlemen, you can come. Ladies and gentlemen, the trip to policy conference is something that I am sure is one that you'll never forget. It's an opportunity to be in a room, 18,000 people strong, celebrating something we all feel passionate about. And when you go home and you look at the news and you look at the Facebook feeds and everything is negative, everything makes you feel defensive, this is the opportunity to be in the affirmative, to go on the offensive to feel great about what we're able to achieve when we come together. So I look forward to tonight's talk. I look forward to seeing you in March, and I trust that we'll continue to have this wonderful conversation and dialogue in the weeks, months, and years to come. Thank you. I'm honored and delighted to have the opportunity to introduce Yossi this evening and to have all of you here, and I'm grateful, incredibly grateful, to Rabbi Singer and all the other rabbis and congregants at Emmanuel who have opened their doors to us this evening. As Adam mentioned, I am APAC's Regional Synagogue Initiative Director, in addition to that being a little bit of a mouthful of a, a title. In that capacity, I work with rabbis and congregants to strengthen the pro-Israel community throughout the Pacific Northwest, in synagogues specifically. And in the synagogue initiative, we often refer to a certain dichotomy or analogy, the goof and the nefesh of Israel, the body and the soul. This is really the notion that in order to nurture Israel's soul and to allow it to achieve its full potential, 
we must also and first and foremost protect its body. We believe that by ensuring Israel's safety and security, we actually provide the people of Israel and the government of Israel with the space to achieve its and our own spiritual objectives. And really, our spiritual aspirations as Jews and others, but Jews in particular living in the diaspora. We also realize that this is a complicated proposition. Perhaps it's even the next chicken and egg question. Which comes first, the nefesh or the goof, the body or the soul? We know that we need a healthy, engaged soul to allow for meaningful and ethical protection of the body. There is perhaps no one better positioned to explore this complexity with us than Yossi Klein Halevi. And perhaps no one in the Jewish world today who has devoted more time and energy to addressing this complexity and bringing people together in better understanding each other's points of views in order to get there, to reach that understanding. Yossi Klein Halevi is a senior fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute in Jerusalem. He's also the author, as many of you know, of Like Dreamers, the story of the Israeli paratroopers who reunited Jerusalem and divided a nation, published by HarperCollins in 2013, and still an incredibly popular book in our community, and very important. Like Dreamers won the Jewish Book Council's award for Best Jewish Book of the Year. Yossi has obviously not confined himself to writing books, but is a avid journalist and writes for the Times of Israel, has written for various other publications over the years, and contributes to the op-ed pages of many leading American newspapers. His first book, Memoirs of a Jewish Extremist, told the story of his teenage attraction to and a subsequent disillusion from Jewish militancy. The New York Times called that book a book of burning importance. His 2001 book, at the entrance to the Garden of Eden, a Jew's search for God with Christians and Muslims in the Holy Land, also garnered praise from within and beyond the Jewish community. Cynthia Ozick, novelist Cynthia Ozick, called it a permanent masterwork. And the former Archbishop of Canterbury, Dr. Rowan Williams, called it extraordinary and heartbreaking, a book full of wonders. In addition to teaching at Hartman, Yossi co-directs the Institute's Muslim Leadership Initiative, a program that teaches emerging young Muslim American leaders about Israel and Judaism, and actually brings them to Israel at the beginning and end of the program. Yossi spent the fall of 2013 as a visiting professor of Israel Studies at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. And from 2003 to 2009, he was a senior fellow at the Shalem Center in Jerusalem. Over the years, he's been involved in various Jewish-Palestinian peace initiatives and continues to explore the complex questions that are involved in bringing the two peoples together and bringing people from across the Jewish community together. Yossi was born in New York, where he attained a, or in, and where he did attain a BA in Jewish studies from Brooklyn College and a Master's of Science and Journalism from Northwestern University. He moved to Israel in 1982, so has lived there for over three decades, and lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Sarah, who I'm sure will be very happy to have him back after his uh, breakneck trip to, uh, to the Pacific Northwest. 
Yossi is going to speak first about the mood in Israel today, and then about the relationship between Israel and American Jews. We're incredibly fortunate to have him with us this evening. Please join me in welcoming him to the stage. Good evening, and uh, thank you so much, Rachel. I'm, uh, I'm especially delighted to be here with you tonight for, for several reasons. Uh, one is a reason that Rachel alluded to. This is actually my last talk on a lecture tour. And I go home tomorrow. And there's, there are very few places where I would have wanted to end this lecture tour than here tonight with you, with some very old and precious friends, Naomi, Sissi, I'm just delighted to be back with you both. Last week, uh, before coming to, uh, to the West Coast, I was waiting in a restaurant in uh, the Machana Yehuda Market in Jerusalem for a friend to show up. And he was a bit late, and I was, my mind was drifting, I was daydreaming a bit, and I imagined the restaurant blowing up. And my friend shows up, and I said, you know, I'm really glad you're here because I was getting a little carried away and just imagining uh, the worst atrocities here. And he says to me, that's so funny that you're saying that, because as soon as I walked into the restaurant, my first thought was imagining a flash of white light. And we both realized at that moment that we are living in a, uh, in a society uh, that is deeply scarred by what we've experienced over the last, in particular, over the last 16 years, going back to the year 2000. And I mentioned the year 2000 as the watershed, the moment that I believe contemporary Israel was born. And at that moment, with the collapse of the Oslo process and the beginning of the four or five years of suicide bombings, the Israel that we knew in the 1990s, optimistic Israel, the Israel that believed that peace was imminent, or many of us believed that peace was imminent, that Israel was replaced by the Israel that we know today. To my mind, we have been in one long war that began in September 2000, a war that does not yet have a name, but if I were to give it a name, I would call it the War of the Israeli Home Front. Because this is the first time since 1948 when the Home Front rather than explicitly the Israeli army, is the primary target of all of our successive conflicts that began with the suicide bombings of the early 2000s, followed by the rocket attacks uh, on Israeli communities in the north uh, in the war with Hezbollah in 2006, followed by the periodic wars, many wars with Hamas, and the many thousands of rockets that have fallen along the Gaza border. And this war against the Israeli home front has changed Israel in, in every way. And just to give you one idea of how it's transformed the very structure of the army, we used to have three 
commands, three fronts. There was the northern front, the southern front, and the central front. After the year 2000, the army added a fourth front, the home front command. And this command has the full infrastructure of the other three military commands. And it is becoming increasingly one of the most important focuses of Israeli military planning. In fact, this week there, there, uh, there was a drill, a national drill throughout the country, sirens, uh, except in the communities along the Gaza border where you don't have to have a drill because everyone there knows exactly where the closest shelters are. We in Israel live in a situation that might best be called post-trauma, pre-trauma. And maybe you in San Francisco can identify to some extent with living between, between traumas, between emergencies. And what we know in Israel is that the next war, the next outbreak of conflict can happen on any border at any time. In preparation for this talk, I made a list of the warnings that we've heard, that the Israeli public has been given by various IDF spokespeople just in the last few weeks about what to expect in the coming months. So there was a warning uh, a couple weeks ago that within the next six months, we should expect an Islamic State attack on Israel from Sinai. Not sure what to do with that. You file it away with all the other warnings. Uh, there was a warning uh, not long ago that the next war with Hezbollah will probably begin by Hezbollah seizing control over an Israeli village or a kibbutz in the north, an entire village, holding that village hostage which will prompt a massive invasion uh, of uh, southern Lebanon. The army is constantly preparing the public to, to, to get used to the idea that we are going to have a showdown with Hamas. And the other day when Hamas, when uh, somebody in Gaza fired a rocket that landed inside the town of Sterot, and we massively responded, which was actually very much out of character because the old policy was if no one is injured or killed to respond moderately. Now the policy has changed. And many of us in Israel were wondering, well, is this the moment? Has the army or the government decided that this is the moment for the final showdown with Hamas? And so from every direction, there are warnings, threats, and that is the soundtrack of life in Israel today. And the question that I think we ask ourselves from time to time is, how do we cope? How do you stay sane with this accumulation of constant and rather urgent warnings? The first, I think the first response on the part of Israelis is simply with an expression of the extraordinary vitality of the society, 
which often seems to me an attempt, an unconscious attempt by Israelis to compensate for the missing centuries of Jewish sovereignty. And everyone in Israel seems to have some kind of a scheme, a plan, either for the country or for their own advancement. And when I was writing my last book, Like Dreamers, which is the story of a group of paratroopers who fought together in 67 and 73 and 82, and in the intervals between those wars, uh, basically fought each other as civilians, as activists on opposite sides of the left-right divide. And I began to see a, a, a pattern emerging in the writing, uh, in particular one line that continuously recurred, which was, he had a plan. And that wasn't initially conscious. And I realized that every one of these characters in the book were constantly coming up with big plans for the future of Israel. And then finally, I turned that into a, a conscious literary motif. So every few dozen pages, that line recurs, he had a plan. And so whatever differences, strong differences, exist, exist among these characters politically, ideologically, culturally, what really unites them is this extraordinary vitality and commitment, a personal commitment, to not only defending Israel in wartime, but to take responsibility for the victories that they helped bring and to shape the political uh, results of those victories. I once interviewed the novelist David Grossman. And he said in, in the course of this interview that he receives constant offers for sabbaticals abroad. And he turns them all down. And the reason for that was that he did not want to deprive his children of a year of Israeli vitality. And it was an extraordinary statement from a man who is identified publicly as really one of our curmudgeons, who really is, 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 a, is, is perceived in the Israeli public more as a critic. And yet this was someone who felt so passionately connected to, to the Israeli ethos, to, to Israeli society, that he wouldn't take a sabbatical. And this actually became, uh, I, I recalled this statement during the second Lebanon war, and it became particularly poignant because one of David Grossman's sons was killed in that war. And so there, what we really have learned in Israel, and again, I, I suspect that after crises here in the city, you learn this as well, is to resume the pretense of normal life, to as quickly as possible re-inhabit the old patterns of normalcy. In, I noticed that in recent months, I have had almost no conversations political arguments with friends. We don't talk about what we used to call the situation. I haven't even heard that expression used in Israel in a long time, Hamatzav. And last year, for those of you who follow Israeli politics, you'll recall that we had our most domestically driven agenda 
political, well, our most domestically driven election campaign, certainly in, in, in any of the years that, that I recall. And the Labor Party, the party of the Oslo process, did not speak about peace, did not speak about the Palestinians. It was virtually unmentioned. And I think that one of the reasons for that, well, there are several. One reason is because we're just so tired of debating an issue that we have debated for 40 years and where everyone can recite from memory each other's arguments. I think that there's a deeper reason, though, and that is that most Israelis feel today that at least for now, we have exhausted our options on the Palestinian issue. We have successively tried right-wing options in the 1980s, 70s and 80s. We went for greater Israel and we invaded Lebanon and this, there was this notion that if we project enough power, we will force the Middle East to accommodate uh, to, to, to reconcile with our vision of gr greater Israel, then that notion ended with the first intifada of the late 1980s, when my generation, which was the generation that, that, that fought the first intifada, came out of that experience convinced that we need to try something else. And so we elected Yitzhak Rabin, and we went from the decade of greater Israel in the 80s to the decade of peace now in the 90s. If that didn't work, let's try the alternative. Peace now ended for most Israelis with the second intifada. Just as the first intifada proved for my generation, for many of us, that the position, the vision of the right, the price was too high for fulfilling the vision of greater Israel. The second intifada convinced us that we don't have a credible peace partner in the Palestinian national movement. The left won the argument over occupation in the first intifada. The right won the argument over the impossibility of peace in the second intifada. Then came the third option, which was the option of the center. The option promoted by Prime Minister Sharon, unilateral withdrawal. And the idea of unilateralism was that if the left was correct that we can't permanently occupy another people, and the right was correct that we don't have a credible peace partner with the leadership of that people, then we need to unilaterally determine our own borders and withdraw. And so I personally was a passionate supporter of the unilateral withdrawal for precisely that reason. The left had convinced me about the occupation, the right had convinced me about the peace, and now Sharon had convinced me that we still had an option. And then came the withdrawal, the thousands of rockets falling on Israel. But what finally convinced me that unilateralism is an untenable option for Israel was the Gaza War of 2009 cast lead. And what we learned in cast lead was even though we waited four long years before finally sending the army back into Gaza to try to stop the rockets, most of the international community treated us as war criminals. And so if we were to then withdraw unilaterally from the West Bank, which I personally 
thought was the next stage that we should do. And I think Sharon was moving in that direction because don't forget that along with the withdrawal from Gaza, he built the security barrier. And many of us saw that security barrier as the outline of a future border with the East. We'll never know because Sharon shortly afterwards uh, got his fatal stroke. And so the notion of withdrawing from the West Bank and exposing Ben Gurion Airport, Tel Aviv, and Jerusalem to rocket fire from the hills of the West Bank, and then sending the Israeli army in to stop the rockets, that now became an untenable option. And so unilateralism ended as well. Now, what I think happened to most Israelis was that we reached an unspoken consensus. And really, this was not something that, that I ever really heard, con really heard consciously articulated, either by politicians or by ordinary Israelis. But this is, in fact, what happened, was that as a society, we adopted a fourth option, which is do nothing. Status quo. Because the feeling was that every time we took the initiative, building settlements, negotiating for peace and offering territorial concessions, unilateral withdrawal, whatever we did turned out to be, in one way or another, a disaster. And so is the Israeli public froze and essentially became stalemated against itself, where m many of us internalized the left-right split. The left-right split was not happening out there anymore. It was being argued inside each of us. And the way that I would, I would phrase that for myself, and I think it's true for many Israelis, is that a Palestinian state means two things for us. One is it is an existential necessity for all the reasons you know. And at the same time, it is an existential threat. Again, I think, for all the reasons you know. Put another way, for me, a Palestinian state represents two nightmares. I, my first nightmare is that there won't be a Palestinian state. And my second nightmare is that there will be a Palestinian state. And so I am stalemated against myself. I am too afraid to move. And I think that the reason that Netanyahu has surprised so many of us with his political longevity, and he is now on his way to becoming the longest serving prime minister in the history of Israel, outstripping all of them, Ben-Gurion and Golda and Rabin, it's just simply extraordinary given the fact that nobody likes this man in Israel. <laughs> And, and, and I mean that. Even, even his voters don't like him. But, but what Netanyahu's genius is to intuit precisely this mood. Netanyahu is the prime minister of the status quo. Don't move. What, what most Israelis, I sense, want today in our prime minister is someone who will continuously affirm that the goal is a two-state solution, 
but do absolutely nothing to bring us any closer to that goal. That, truthfully, is what most Israelis want. Now, the problem with that position is that the status quo is one more dead end. And that we experienced in this last year with the renewal of terror, with the, 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 the privatization of terror, where some teenager picks up a kitchen knife and goes out into the street to stab Israelis. And so the status quo, too, has become, to some extent, untenable. Now, what gives me some tentative hope, and I don't want to sound too optimistic, is that, and, I, and this, this may sound ironic, but precisely the collapse of the region has brought with it the first sign of some hope for Israel finding its place eventually in the Middle East. Now, the only silver lining that I see in this terrible deal that was signed last year, a deal which for me poses the greatest threats that Israel will face in the coming years, and not only Israel, the whole Middle East, it is, it is a deal of such historic disaster that, if anything, I think that those of us who spoke vehemently against this deal last year uh, were understating the case, and that is going to become increasingly clear in the coming years. The one silver lining of this deal is that it has brought Israel closer together with large parts of the Sunni world in a strategic alliance against a resurgent Iran. And what we have discovered, and the West has not yet internalized this, but the Middle East certainly has, is that the main divide today in the region is not the Arab-Israeli conflict. That's the old Middle East. The new Middle East is divided by Sunni Shiites. And Israel has learned that we are a Sunni Jewish state. <laughs> And we are in that camp. And if, if you follow what's happening, for example, with Saudi Arabia, the beginnings of a rapprochement, it, it's, it's, it, it was inconceivable even a year ago. The Saudi media in the last few weeks has launched a campaign against anti-Semitism. This is the media that was the prime purveyor of anti-Semitism over the last decades. So we may be seeing some profound transformation. And my hope is that if this strategic relationship deepens, it could have some political consequences. We could conceive of a situation in which, for example, the Saudi peace plan of 2002, which to my mind was a non-starter for all kinds of reasons, uh, not least because it was a take-it-or-leave-it plan. The Saudis put it on the table and told Israel it is a diktat and there's no room for negotiations. I could see the Saudi plan as a basis for negotiations. And by bringing in the region into the process, we may be able to create a dynamic, and again, I'm going to choose my words very carefully, 
where we can more successfully manage the crisis with the Palestinians and begin to devolve the occupation. I'm not speaking about a just and lasting peace. That rhetoric does not exist in the Middle East of 2016. And almost everyone in Israel knows it. And, uh, and that's something that I think the international community needs to internalize. One result of the war that began in the year 2000 is that we are beginning to see some cracks in the ability of parts of Israeli society to maintain the balance between security needs and democratic norms. Before talking about what's happening in terms of Israeli attitudes toward democracy, I think that, that, that this needs to be said as, a, as, a, as an essential prelude, and that is that Israeli democracy is a miracle. And it is a miracle because there's no other example of any democratic country that was created by populations coming from profoundly non-democratic cultures, whether Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, or the Arab world, bringing these immigrants, these refugees, into a permanent pressure cooker, endless siege, endless terror, and this society not only manages to create vibrant democratic institutions, but to sustain them. And so whatever is happening today in Israel, whatever is going wrong in parts of Israeli society, I look at Europe, for example. I look at what's happening in Europe today, where they are experiencing far less intensive forms of terrorism than we have experienced from day one of the creation of the state. And yet you see the panic. You see the rise of the far right throughout Western Europe, from, from Germany to Greece. And here I think that Israeli society on the whole is not doing badly. My sense of what Israeli democracy is, is that we are a democracy under extremity. We are a laboratory, a test case for what happens when demo a democracy is, is subjected to overwhelming pressure. And in that sense, even our democratic failures, our flaws, are worth studying because they tell us where the fault lines are in a democracy that is being subjected to such intense pressure. Now, what worries me about what is developing in Israel is especially among young Israelis, we are seeing a, a, a growing impatience with democratic norms. A poll was taken of Israeli Jewish high school students recently. A majority what would want to deny Arab Israelis the vote. Uh, we had the scandalous comment by our Prime Minister on election day warning Jewish Israelis that their fellow Arab citizens were committing the democratic crime of going to vote in the election. Uh, he did later apologize, but what troubled me more even than the statement itself was the calculation that Netanyahu made that that kind of, a, of appeal would win him votes. And I assume that it did. 
Now, it's certainly true that we are in a very complicated dynamic with the Arab-Israeli community. The Arab-Israeli community, and this we see in poll after poll, a majority of Arab-Israelis, Palestinian-Israelis, are integrationists, want to be part of Israeli society, and yet the elected representatives that they sent to the Knesset are by and large not integrationists, not civil rights-minded, but nationalists and separatists. And so there's a deep disconnect and a very ambivalent message that the Arab minority sends to the Jewish majority. And in that sense, we're really in a, in a deep bind. What gives me hope here is that we are seeing a growing kind of tacit revolt by young Arab Israelis against their political leadership, particularly in the area of um, national service. This year, something like five or 6,000 young Arab Israelis have signed up for national service, which the Arab political leadership in Israel is vehemently opposed to because it's under the auspices of the defense ministry and this lends legitimacy and it ties the Arab community to the mainstream, which is precisely why so many young Arab Israelis want to do national service. So we're seeing, I think, the beginnings of a deep rift, a very healthy rift, in the Arab-Israeli community. And I hope that the Jewish majority will have the wisdom to encourage the integrationists in the Arab-Israeli community rather than push the entire community into a corner. Now, when I think of our relationship, what I need from American Jews is, first of all, I need partners in enhancing Israel's democratic norms in, in the kind of Israel that American Jews want to see. And as a citizen who is looking around and seeing a society with increasing democratic fatigue, a society in which the siege is penetrating, I need allies. And the American Jewish community, with your extraordinary expertise in civil rights and human rights, you are a, 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 a tremendous resource for us. What I need the American Jewish community in order to fulfill that role and to be part of an internal Israeli conversation, I need American Jews to have credibility in Israel. And all too often, what Israelis hear, especially from American Jewish critics, and I personally don't mind the criticism. I would even put it more strongly. I think that an essential facet of Jewish citizenship is to be so deeply involved with Israel that you have the responsibility to critique and criticize when necessary. The question is how. And what I need are partners who understand the complexity of what Israel is facing. Partners, frankly, who don't sound like John Kerry preaching peace to Israel in the year 2016. I need partners who will remind us that settlement building is a disaster, not because settlement building is the primary obstacle to peace. It is not. We could uproot every last settlement tomorrow. It will not bring us one step closer to a negotiated settlement. That's my belief. 
I, at the same time, I believe we need to free settlement building for all kinds of other reasons. Not as a reward to the Palestinians, not as part of negotiations, not to jumpstart a non-existent peace process, but first of all, because this is debilitating for our society, and secondly, because hopefully sometime in the future we will have some kind of an agreement and we should stop making that agreement more complicated for the long term. So I need partners in that conversation as well. Very often when I travel through the American Jewish community, I feel as if I'm in a kind of time warp. When I speak to orthodox right-wing communities, I feel like I'm in the 1980s. And Begin and Shamir are still prime minister, and all we have to do is have the determination to keep building because it's all ours. And it's as if the first intifada never happened. And when I speak in liberal Jewish communities, it's often the 1990s, the Oslo years. And we have a peace partner, and all we have to do is have the determination. It's always about our determination, never about what the other side wants. And we need to have the will to sign a peace agreement, and we all know what the agreement is going to be. As if the second intifada never happened. Most Israelis today live after the first and second intifadas. We live in a different Israel. What I find very often, and this is very painful for me, is that many American Jews live in a kind of state of denial. On the right, that's expressed by saying there's no such thing as an occupation. And I hear that all the time when I speak in Orthodox synagogues. And, and for me, I personally draw a, a, a distinction. When I use the word occupation, I refer to our occupation of the Palestinian people, not of the land. I do not believe that the Jewish people is an occupier in any part of the land of Israel. I believe it is all mine. The problem is that there's another people living in the land which believes that that land is all theirs. Between the river and the sea, you don't have one land, you have two conceptual territories. You have the land of Israel and the land of Palestine. And the only way I believe we'll ever reach an agreement is if we sit down with the Palestinians and say, we understand that you regard all of that land as yours, and I personally, I have no problem with that because I regard all of that land as mine. Now what do we do? Now we need to divide it. And so the occupation, I, when I speak of occupation, obviously we are occupying another people. But when I speak in certain circles in this country, and you don't hear that, by the way, in Israel, even on the Israeli right, of course, we, we know there's an occupation because we all serve in the occupation, or our children serve in the occupation. We know that there's an occupation. And yet this denial of reality sometimes goes even further, and I'm sure some of you have heard this from the right in this country. There's no such thing not only as an occupation, there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. Netanyahu routinely speaks of the Palestinian people. Sharon routinely spoke of the occupation. So there's this disconnect. And the disconnect, the denial, and the Jewish left is that we're not really dealing with a pathological rejectionism on the part of the entire Palestinian national movement, ranging from Fatah to the Islamists, but of course we have partners who are ready to accept us. 
We do not, at this point, have partners in any part of the Palestinian national leadership who are ready to accept the, le the legitimacy of a Jewish state in any borders, who are ready to accept the idea that we are not a colonialist intrusion, but an indigenous people returning home. That concept you will not come across in Palestinian discourse. I have been following the Palestinian media for many years. Not once have I seen an article suggesting in any of the Palestinian media that we actually have some legitimacy. So these are the two forms of denial that I need. I need American Jews to be mature partners in complexity, in anguish. That's really what, what Israel needs. And when I think about our relationship, and I'll make two or three comments and then, and then we'll open for questions. When I, think, when I think about our relationship between these two extraordinary centers of Jewish life, to some extent, tensions are built in to, to, to the dynamic. And they're built in because of the different geographical circumstances under which we live. We in Israel live in the most inhospitable region in the world. American Jews live in the most hospitable atmosphere that Jews have ever lived in. As a result of these opposite geographical circumstances, each community has devised opposite strategies. Our strategy is to be tough. Your strategy is to be flexible. Now, the irony or the trap of the Israeli strategy is that the tougher we are, the better our situation becomes in the Middle East, but the worse our situation becomes in the liberal West. And most American Jews, as we know, live in that place. And so the built-in tensions are inherently aggravated by our, our responses to our circumstances. How do we begin to develop a deeper relationship? And here I think that we need to start placing the question of the future of Judaism, which we share as two, as two Jewish centers, place the future of Judaism at the center of our relationship, something we have not yet done. And I, I, I think in terms of creating almost a new Yiddish, I mean this metaphorically, the two great Jewish languages of our time are Hebrew and English. And we need to begin a conversation based on the Jewish lives, the Jewish the kinds of Jewish life that each community has created. And we need to start knowing each other's Judaism. What we in Israel need to learn from the American Jewish community in the Judaism that you have created, the forms of Judaism, are, two, to my mind, two things. First of all, the freedom to create the next stage of Judaism, the freedom to own Judaism. And this is a very foreign concept for Israelis. In, is, in Israel, we feel owned by Judaism. And here you have developed, you've, 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 you've internalized 
the freedom of America and created American Judaism. That's what we need to start learning. And the second thing we need to learn from you is something that always strikes me when I'm in, 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 in American Jewish circles, in particular when I go to prayer services, is this joy that many American Jews feel in their Jewishness. Now Israelis, by and large, I would say, are proud to be Jewish, but the notion that, that being Jewish is actually a source of joy is entirely foreign to Israelis. <laughs> American Jews, and, and, and someone once explained this to me, in some sense, American Jews really are, all American Jews are Jews by choice. In Israel, all of us are Jews by coercion. And, and what we need is something of that liberation that you have managed to achieve here. And what I think we can offer the American Jewish community is something of the depth of, of the Israeli experience, Israeli culture. I'm thinking, for example, of the extraordinary development of uh, Jewish spiritual music in Israeli rock that's happening in the last year. Some of you may be following this. It is, to my mind, the most profound Jewish music that's been created uh, in, in, in the Jewish world in the last, uh, in the la since the Holocaust, for sure. And so something extraordinary is happening, and this is music that doesn't just belong to me as an Israeli. This is music that is based on Jewish sources. It is based on, on, on an Israeli attempt to come to terms with how do you pray in the contemporary world? How do you pray to a God that you're not even sure is there? And there's a whole genre that's, been, that's being created of struggle with prayer that I think should be taught, should be part of the American Jewish spiritual experience as well as, as ours. And the last point that I really would like to conclude by thanking all of you for being with APAC and thanking APAC. I, I have had the privilege uh, in this very intense uh, whirlwind tour through the West Coast to get to know some of the most extraordinary public servants uh, in the Jewish world. Uh, people who are giving heart and soul to the American-Israeli relationship. And really, it is a level of selflessness that one rarely sees, I think, anywhere these days. And very often, we tend to take APAC for granted. And what, I, what I've come to realize about APAC is that when Maybe I'll preface it by saying that a healthy Jewish community needs to accommodate as broad a political diversity as possible. We need J Street on the one side, and we need the ZOA on the other side, and all points in between. But a healthy Jewish community also knows when to come together under a big tent for specific goals. APAC's goal is nurturing and enhancing the American-Israeli relationship, and that, thank God, we have APAC, because I couldn't imagine where Israel would be today without APAC, without all of you. Thank you very much for everything you've done.
Thank you, Yossi. We are now going to open it up to questions. And uh, two of my colleagues will be walking around with microphones. They will make sure they cover both sides of the room. So please raise your hand if you have a question, and one of them will come to you. And when we're finished the questions, Jordan Heimowitz from Emmanuel's Israel Action Committee will come up to share some concluding comments, remarks, uh, after which those of you who have blue dots on your name tags, uh, please go to the main sanctuary of foyer. Thank you very much. Foyer, excuse me, I was born in another country. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, Ehud Barak had a different nightmare than yours, and that's the Israeli with a passport. That is what... Say An Israeli with a passport. There are approximately a million Israelis who are currently living in the United States, and his nightmare, at least the way he expressed it, was that Israelis now have the choice of either facing unending conflict and the kinds of life that you're talking about, or really having the freedom to go to Canada, the United States, if you are in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, filled with Israelis, uh, many of whom um, don't really integrate into the traditional Jewish community. They tend to be among themselves, but one wonders what that says and whether that's something that concerns you and what is your view. And, and it's very interesting because I'm from New York about the same age as you, and we made Aliyah to California. You made it to Israel. But there have only been about 60,000 North Americans who have made Aliyah since 48 because the Anglo-American, Anglos are the only ones that have had a choice to go to Israel and weren't forced to go to Israel. So this is an issue. We, we make a lot of noise, though. Yeah. Uh, so this is an issue that Ehud Barak raises, and I'm wondering if you can talk about this. I, um, I'm very worried about the prospect of open-ended conflict and Israel's place in a collapsing region, but not for the reason that Ehud Barak cites. That, I think, is an old and outdated Israeli anxiety. This notion that we're going to lose large numbers, we've already lost large numbers. And the moment when I think Israeli society lost that anxiety was the 1990s when a million and a half Russians showed up. And we used to keep track of how many Israelis are leaving, how many immigrants are coming in. Uh, I remember as a journalist, when I was working in those years as a journalist, I kept very close uh, watch on those statistics. I have no idea what the immigration statistics are for over the last decade. It doesn't really interest me. I'm, I'm, I'm delighted when immigrants come. I'm, I'm delighted that immigrants are not coming from France. But I, I'm not anxious about numbers. And that, I think, is one sign of the maturation of Israeli society. Other countries don't really worry uh, about, about immigration, emigration. And we are now, I don't know, 8 million? I don't, I don't even know how many we are. I mean, I, that's also a, a sign of of, of this lessening of, of the demographic anxiety. Uh, I, I, I want, I'm worried about my kids leaving. I, I want to be sure that my kids who have American passports find their place in Israel. And my kids are artists and musicians and there's a lot of temptation to go abroad. That's a very personal anxiety. Uh, I, I'm not worried 
about the million Israelis who live abroad, and also because we see that, that some come back, some of their kids come back, some of their kids come to serve in the army. When I speak on campuses around, around the country, I more and more encounter the children of uh, Israeli Americans who are taking a front line uh, activist uh, stance to, to defend Israel, and this is something that I didn't see as much five years ago, for example. So I, I, I'm not at all worried about Israelis in America. I think they're starting to come into their own. I think it's a community that will, that has the potential to be a tremendous resource, not only for the American Jewish community, but a bridge between the two communities. And even though the American, uh, the numbers of American immigrants are, are, are low, they're not quite as low as you said. I think it's, I, 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 I don't think it's something like 150,000, but I'm, I'm not sure. Nevertheless, I think that, that these two communities, uh, Israeli Americans and American Israelis, have a lot in common. First of all, we speak the same language, which is the New Yiddish. We, we, and that's, we speak to our kids in a mixture of Hebrew and English. And, and, but more deeply, we are the two groups that know most intimately these two communities. And so I, I, don't, I think that, that on the whole, we are strong enough as a society, uh, we're strong enough as a people to uh, not to hold on to, to anxieties that Barack is, is carrying from, from the past. We have enough current anxieties to keep us away. <clears throat> uh, thank you, Yossi, for coming tonight. really enjoyed your speech. Um, I should say that I was fortunate enough to go on a Federation-sponsored trip to Israel in March with some folks in the room. And we visited the Hartman Institute, really impressed with what we heard by one of your colleagues. And a common threat I heard from your speech tonight and your colleagues is that um, you know, the current situation in Israel uh, is not sustainable. And that, um, and it's quite, as an American who, Jew who believes kind of in American progress, there's always going to be peace if we work hard enough for it, that's hard to hear. And, and one thing that's uh, particularly challenging to hear is that you don't seem to have a partner for peace on the Palestinian side, but you have a domestic political situation in Israel that reinforces the status quo. So one thing that, you know, you touched on, your colleague talked about was, uh, your colleague was a little more pessimistic about the, the, you know, the, this generation's almost lost for the peace process. So how do we uh, sprinkle the seeds of hope for the next generation? Uh, both how does Israel do that? And I'm curious to hear how could Jews in America help, uh, you know, basically plant the seeds for the future to try to get a peace process reinvigorated and, and, and come to fruition? In, uh, in the 90s, I was involved in various efforts to bring Israelis and Palestinians together, particular um, journalists on both sides. We created an organization called the Israeli-Palestinian Media Forum, which brought several hundred journalists from both sides together for a very fruitful two-year period. Uh, and then the Palestinian Authority forbade Palestinian journalists from continuing to participate, and it fell apart. Uh, so, the problem today is that there is a wall, literally and metaphorically. And where I think we need to concentrate our efforts, first of all, 
is within Israeli society, between Palestinian Israelis and Jewish Israelis. That, is, is, that should be a major growth industry. And there are some, some very fine efforts happening throughout Israeli society, not enough. And that's, that in, in, in this time where realistically Palestinian Israeli people-to-people -people contacts are very difficult to organize, that's where we need to, to strengthen whatever is possible. And again, I think we need to be reaching out to the Arab world, the Muslim world. And uh, I'm involved with a project at, at the Hartman Institute called the Muslim Leadership Initiative, where we bring groups of young emerging Muslim American leaders to Jerusalem to study Judaism, Israel, Zionism. And these are front rank emerging leaders of, of, of uh, American Islam. Uh, it's not easy, but there is, I sense, an opening. I think there's a possibility for some form of normal relations between Muslims and Jews in this country that may not be possible anywhere else at this point. And so at the Hartman Institute, we are moving in that direction. And we're also working more intensively within the Arab-Israeli community. We've, uh, we're st we've started a program this year bringing in significant numbers of Arab-Israeli intellectuals into the Institute for the first time. So there, those, those initiatives are happening. In terms of the Palestinians at this point, I honestly don't know what to say. Uh, I would like, if possible, if you could, I'm over here. Where are we? Right here. <laughs> to return for a moment to your Sunni Israeli concept. And uh, maybe it's, my worry is not so much from the Israeli side as the world side. I mean, we know and take pride that any disaster anywhere in the world, the Israelis show up with a hospital and the dogs and and don't demand any credit and never get any credit, but we know that the work was done. Prior to coming here tonight, I looked at the headlines of the Jerusalem Post that was reporting on the major addresses at the United Nations. Now, there's 60 million displaced people. 60 million. In the last year. Yes, just now. Yes. yes. And the major addresses all had the Israeli, only Israel would not be the apartheid nation with the Palestinians. It just went on and on and on. And I'm not saying that Israel is not doing its part, but what do you suggest we can do when the Black Lives Matter put in their agenda the garbage that they do? And when we have these problems right here in the country and in the world. How, how can we get a Sunni-Israeli I, I think, I think for, for us to be a healthy...